proving who you are. Proving who you are. Um, I worked at a hospital from 2022 to 2023 of September as a chaplain, as many of you know, and now I'm currently working as a hospice chaplain. Um, and at both of those places, one thing was emphasized as imperative, as essential, uh, as of the highest importance that you must, must remember to do amongst many things. This was in the top percentile of most important things that you had to do, and that was you had to have your ID badge. People had to know who you were, who you were representing, who is this dude coming into my hospital room, and what does he want? And they get to see a creepy photo of me uh, on that badge. Anybody see... uh, See this really, really carefully, uh, but has anybody seen the, the, the Jeffrey, is it Jeffrey? Dahmer uh, series on Netflix? It's pretty brutal. I love my wife, but she can be brutal to me because I took a photo for one of my ID badges and she was like, you kind of look like Jeffrey Dahmer. I was like, that is a horrible thing to say, um, but it was kind of true. Uh, and it's funny, if you want to see it, I can show it to you. Uh, actually, I should have put it up on the screen for you, but no, we don't need to do that. Um, in the hospital, it was so imperative that I had it not just for proving who I was, but I literally couldn't get where I needed to go without it. So many places, uh, the ID badge is also uh, a special scanner to get through certain doors, so you need that. As a hospice chaplain, I'm going to homes and facilities, and people are like, hey, I'd like to see this wonderful lady and talk with her, and they're like, who are you, and why are you here? Oh, my badge. And if I don't have it, it's going to be a real difficult problem. Um, The badge is the proof of my identity. Mm-hmm. It's showing this is who I am and this is who I'm representing, the, the facility, the organization that I come on behalf of. Mm-hmm. When it comes to our faith, or when it comes simply to who we are as people, all right. we all represent someone mm-hmm. or something. Amen. Our identity is linked inseparably to someone or something. In other words, if you've never heard this before, let me say it to you now, and I'd ask you to trust me, but do with it what you will. You, by yourself, are not simply your identity. Justin does not just represent Justin. There's something more to Justin. There's something more to Adrian. There's something more to Bill. There's something more to Barry. There's something more to Nick. There's something more to Harold. You, by yourself, are not just who you're representing. There's more to you. And the question is, who or what are you representing? So here's the bottom line. There's a lot that I'm going to continue to just dump on you about fasting. So if you got note takers, phones, take them out. I promise you it'll be helpful for you in this season. Um, but here's really the big idea um, that I would like you to understand amidst many other minor ideas. And that is that fasting reveals who you are. It reveals who you are. Now, as we look at Scripture, and I make some other points, the other points are going to bolster. They're going to build upon this as the foundation. But fasting reveals who you are. So let's jump to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this whole section for you. Many of you might already be familiar with it. It's the story, the narrative account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. So let's start in verse 1, and it says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Father, right now, I pray that through your word and the words that proceed from my heart and come out of my mouth, would you be glorified and would we as a body experience life in you, Jesus. Change us from the inside out. So here's the, uh, a point that I want to give you based on what we just read. Jesus began his ministry with fasting and defeated the enemy through it. Jesus began his ministry with fasting and defeated the enemy through it. Now, What's important that many of you may already know, having heard probably, I'm sure, many sermons on this text, but it is still nonetheless important to point out again, is that the weapon used by Jesus in this battle between himself and Satan was what? The word of God. That's right. So every time the enemy tries to tempt Jesus to compromise, Jesus's weapon is the word, but The word is the weapon in the warfare that has already been engaged. And what was the step that led Jesus into this predicament, this warfare? Fasting, and technically something else, the Holy Spirit. So just pause for a second, and I want you to think about this. For those of you that say, God doesn't lead you into difficult circumstances, I got a newsflash for you. Um... The Spirit is the one who explicitly is stated as having led Jesus into the wilderness. And whenever you see wilderness in Scripture, it is not synonymous with relaxation, fruitfulness. You look at the story of the Israelites from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even on the way to the Promised Land, even in spite of all of their disobedience and sinful behavior and defiance of God, the wilderness is hardship always hardship. John the Baptist, who removed himself, the cousin of Jesus, from the comfort of the city, was someone who went out into the wilderness, and he lived off of locusts and wild honey. Try that for your fast. Jesus goes out to the wilderness just prior to this. If you read in the Gospel of Luke, he's baptized by his cousin John the Baptist in order to fulfill the word of God in the wilderness, receives the Holy Spirit, and then immediately... He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So right here we see the very Spirit of God prior to any of Jesus' ministry is leading him into a place of difficulty, of trial, of testing. And while he's there, what does he do? No, 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 sorry. While he's there, what does Jesus do? Fasts and prays. Whenever you see fasting, understand that prayer is always linked with it. They're never inseparable. I'm just saying fasting, but fast pray, fast pray, fast pray, fast pray. Don't pray very fast. I mean fasting and prayer. Fast, fasting and prayer is what Jesus is doing while he is led into this difficult season by the very Spirit of God. Um, So it's interesting in the scene that um, you kind of have this Again, let's just paint this picture of difficulty. The devil is described as many things in the Bible, but one of the things he's described as is as a lion, prowling around looking for someone to devour. And that identifier is used in the New Testament to talk about how Satan is looking to tempt. He's like a lion, and he wants to use temptation to get you, to pounce on you, to rip you apart, to get you to give in to sin. And now Jesus is led into the wilderness where wild beasts are, where this lion is, to be tempted. So this is no walk in the park. And the Bible says that Jesus did it for 40 days and 40 nights, which don't try at home, children. It's not going to work out well for you. There is clearly something miraculous about this. Um, If you want to try it, then just have water on standby is all that I'll say. 
um, but he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, something miraculous. Now, let's just continue to talk a little bit about trials and temptations, um, that in Scripture, when you study Greek, they're actually used synonymously. When you see the word tempted or trial, there are two Greek words, but there's one primary Greek word that's used interchangeably. So it means really just a host of trial or temptation, but really the heart of it can be found in the Hebrew, which is what I'll get to in a few moments. What's important for you to be able to understand the difference between of when is it good trial or tempting or when is it bad? Let's make it easy. When you see the word trial, it's not a bad thing. When you see the word tempting, it's usually a bad thing in scripture. It means the person behind the trial really isn't bad. The Bible, as I'm about to read to you from another epistle, says that God allows us to face trials, but it's the same word for tempting, but it's not tempting within context. Here within context, the same word is tempting because that's what Satan does. He tempts. So, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 say this. Consider it pure joy when you sing songs to the Lord. Uh, when you come to church and pastor gives a good message, when you get that blessing. No. Certainly that's something to be joyful about, but what does this say? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials, same word, of many kinds. Why? Why on earth, why God, would you say to consider it pure joy when I've got to walk through it? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I would encourage you, go on and continue to read James, and you're going to get a whole lot more jam-packed into the why there. But right there, simply in those two verses, when we face trials or even temptations from the enemy, consider it pure joy. Why? Because it's giving you life. You're getting mature. You're growing. The word in Greek is literally for maturity, is perfection. Not perfect the way that we would understand it, but perfect is in like, man, you are whole, you are complete. And that only comes when you've got to go through the wilderness. And before Jesus was ever entered into his earthly ministry, he goes into the wilderness. So now we kind of got this picture of what's going on here. Jesus is here, he's fasting, and he's tempted by Satan. But let's put it this way as well. He is also tested by God in order to understand what is most important to Jesus. What's primary in here? What's governing his whole life? Before he even goes into ministry, trying to impact people, help people, heal people, deliver people, raise people from the dead, we've got to see, ultimately, God has to see what's in here. Now, the easy answer is, well, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. Of course, it's going to be pure. Yes, but Jesus is also lived and done everything as an example for us to be imitators of. So, the reason... One of the reasons you're going into the wilderness is for God to see, are you ready for what's next? And if you're not, well, we got some more work to do before we can get there. So Satan shows up, and I want you to notice based on what we read that the very thing that Satan is trying to get Jesus to question is his identity. Now there's a lot there that's been unpacked by many preachers in the past, but I just wanted you to focus on what I really emphasized when I read it. The first words out of Satan's mouth in his encounter with Jesus, the first words of temptation were, if you are the son of God. Now, this is interesting, because at this point, do you think Jesus knew who he was? Likely, but in case you were wondering, let's go back. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, the previous chapter, the previous events, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin in the Jordan, he comes up out of the water, he sees heaven open and the Spirit of God ascending on him like a dove, and then he hears a voice from heaven, his father says something. Let me read this for you. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending.
descending like a dove and alighting or resting on him. Verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, watch this, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So from the very mouth of the father, Jesus's identity is spoken and confirmed. Now Jesus is in the wilderness and what is the first thing that the devil goes for? His identity. His identity. Hmm. So we know Jesus responds and he quotes scripture. I want to hone in on the scripture, primarily the first scripture that he quotes, and I want us to go back and look in the context of what's going on from that Old Testament scripture. What's the story? What's the event? Who are the characters? And see how they have massive implications for Jesus's situation. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 through 3 is the scripture that Jesus has in his mind when he responds to Satan, who then says, if you're the son of God, then prove it and tell these stones to come bread. I know you're hungry. You've been out here for 40 days. Eat some food. Now, Satan is referring to something, and Jesus knows what he's referring to, and he quotes it. Let me read it for you. Just a little tidbit from Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 3. It says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you, this is referring to the Israelites, all the way in the wilderness, these 40 years. Why? To humble and to test. It's the Hebrew word. In order to know what was in your heart. In the wilderness to be tested. Why? What's the reason? In order to know what's in your heart. Where's your heart at? Whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna or manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quoted that last line, understanding the whole backstory to it. Just as he's in the wilderness in this moment for 40 days and 40 nights, The Israelites, hundreds of years ago, were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, day after day, night after night. And they were hungry, just as Jesus was hungry. And in their hunger, God shows up, and God gives them something the likes of which they had never seen before. It even says it here. He gave them manna, a type of bread they did not know. You go back and you read in the Old Testament, it's more like a wafer that has a sweet dew to the top of it. It's not like just a regular loaf of bread that you can get from Taste of Italy that I know all too well. Some twist bread or some French bread or some seeded semolina. Oh, that is the good stuff. I can eat a whole loaf of that. This is more of a wafer with a little bit of sweetness on top. This is what God gives them while in the wilderness. And it's something they had never experienced before, and yet it's the very thing that sustained them. It's all they needed. It wasn't what they were expecting, but it's what gave them life. But if they had an abundance of bread that they had already known, why would they have any need for this supernatural, miraculous gift of the Lord to sustain them? If they had something else to sustain them, why would they need sustenance from God? That's really the big story behind that isolated instance that Jesus is pulling from. And now we got to really zoom in on this. So test in Hebrew is the word nasach. Everybody say nasach. Get the guttural in the back of your throat. Don't do that hand thing that I just did. Nasach. Some of you know what I was getting at there. Don't do that. Ha. To learn, this what it literally means in Hebrew, the idea of it, to learn the true nature of something. You're tested to see what you're made of, is how we would understand it in modern vernacular. If you're not tested, we don't know where you're at. I was really upset during my first few weeks of the new job as a hospice chaplain because I was like, man, I came out of residency. I know what I'm doing. And then I got this wonderful guy, I'll just leave it at that, who is my peer, not my supervisor, and he's telling me everything that I got to do and not do. And I was like, bro, 
can you just shut up? I know what I'm doing. But in all fairness, I realize they've got to know if they can trust me to do work well. Even if I don't like it, I got to be tested. I got to show what I'm made of. I've got to show them the nature of who I am. So I've said this before. Let me say it to you once more definitively, and you can write it down if you need to. Fasting reveals where your heart is. When you are tested, or when you willfully walk through the wilderness, which is what we're doing right now as a church. We weren't forced into this. As a church, we're saying we're going to fast. We're going into the wilderness. We're walking into this test. It's going to reveal what's in here. Um, So again, in Deuteronomy, in this passage, the Israelites are not fasting by choice. Here's a distinction. Jesus by the Spirit, goes into the wilderness, there's much more of a volitional choice to actually fast, this this pious practice. Deuteronomy chapter 8, they're just wandering in the wilderness, and it says they're hungry. They are literally starving. So it's it's not fasting, but it's important to recognize how Jesus uses it to bolster the importance of fasting and temptation against the enemy. So again, the Israelites are not fasting. They are just straight up, good old fashioned starving. They don't have bread like they once did. They don't have stew. They don't have enough livestock. They can't hunt for some reason or there's nothing to be hunted in the wilderness. It's barren. It's desolate. So they're not actually choosing to fast. They're starving here. Um, So in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, here, the giving of the food. Watch this. The manna that God gives in their hunger, the giving of it, is the test. So remember, this isn't fasting. It's not fasting to see what's in their heart through the act of fasting. It's they're hungry, and God gives them something, and it's this provision that is the test and not the withholding of food. Listen, listen, I I know it might be like, what are you talking about, Pastor? Um, If you go back and you actually look in context, God gives specific direction. He goes, I'm going to provide the manna that you need. And there's a very specific way that you're going to collect that manna. Y'all remember that a little bit? He says, you're going to collect every day, but on the weekends for Sabbath, you're going to collect just a little bit extra that you need, but you do not work on the Sabbath because you need to learn to trust that I've given you what you need. And if you go out on the Sabbath, you're showing you're not trusting me. You're trusting in the provision rather than the provider. So collect just enough to sustain you to the new week. Unfortunately, some didn't agree and they went against the will of the Lord and they go out and when they brought back the bread just like that, maggots were in it, it got rotten and they couldn't eat it. There's a lot that could be said about that. Um, so, So God gives the manna as the test within this context and within these parameters to say, I want to see how you're going to use what I'm going to give you. Will you continue to trust the giver or the gift, the provision or the provider? So, let me ask you this question. What are you going to do with what you've been given? And just think about that for a second. Don't, don't, don't answer it. But the things that the Lord has given you, the things that you can sit here and say, yeah, if it wasn't for God, I would not blank. I would not have this. I would not be experiencing this. My life, my relationships, my children, my spouse, my work, my health, whatever it is that you can say, yep, it's clearly because of the grace of God that I'm blessed in this way question for you is, what are you doing with it? Or what's it doing with you? What's it doing to you? Again, fasting is not about abstaining from sin. It's about saying there are good things in my life, but I got to make sure they don't become the thing in my life. Idolatry is not limited to things like pornography, sexual morality, or drugs idolatry can be about good food. It can be about rest. It could be about work. It could be about leisure time. That's what this whole series is about. We've got to make sure the primary person is primary, and that's God. And God is saying, I'm going to give you what you need, but I want to see what you're going to do with it. Are you going to listen, and are you going to trust me that I'm giving you what you need, how you need it, and when you need it? So flip and reverse 
in Jesus's context, he is fasting. And now Satan is doing something really manipulative and really sneaky. Satan knows that Jesus knows the history of the Israelites, this 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus in the, in the wilderness for 40 days. They were going hungry. He's choosing to go hungry through the act of fasting, but still the result, hunger in the belly, need for sustenance and for water. And so he says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And he's thinking back to the miraculous provision of God for the Israelites. He says, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, the son of God who's going to go and live this perfect life and preach the gospel, trying to bring everybody to the Father, if you are going to stand on your identity in God, knowing who you are, I want you to prove it. In the past, God proved his miraculous abilities through providing for his children when they were literally in need a father doing something appropriate for his needy children. And he miraculously gave them bread when there was no bread to be found. So Jesus, there's no bread to be found. And if you are who you say you are and you serve who you say you serve, then this is a good thing. Do a miracle. Did Jesus do miracles? Uh-huh. He did do miracles. So think about how manipulative this is. He's not asking Jesus to do something horrible. He's not asking Jesus, at least at face value, to do something that is so anti-Jesus in his ministry. But the heart of it is, because he's saying, Jesus, I'm going to make you question who your father already said you are, and now you need to prove yourself. Think about what that implies for us as followers of Jesus if we live our lives from a place of insecurity where every time the enemy comes against us and tells us, prove yourself, what is your life going to look like? Where you're always operating from a place of insecurity and you just got to keep proving it and proving it and proving it and proving it. And what would it look like if you were able to rest in the word of God that tells you who you are? And you don't need to prove anything to anybody or the devil. All you need to do is trust God and who he says you are. And listen to me, I didn't say trust yourself. I didn't say trust who you say you are because you can't even trust yourself. I know I can't. Trust God. So manna was this miracle food that the Israelites never ate before. They were used to bread. And Deuteronomy records the purpose of this test. It was... To help teach the people that you are sustained by God's word and not simply bread. And this is another reason why fasting is so important. It's like understanding and recognizing who your source is. Fasting is a reminder that God is our source. Um, And before we move on, let me just say this. After the 40 years of testing in the wilderness, um, actually, let me say this. Where were the Israelites coming from? Remember, where was the big place they were coming from? Where had they been? Egypt. And in Egypt, they were in slavery to their oppressors. Now they're in the wilderness in a time of testing. Unfortunately, it wasn't supposed to be 40 years, but because of their continual defiance to God, God had to do something about it. It wasn't supposed to be 40 years. Take note of that. And all of this, whether it would have been 40 days or 40 years, where were they on their way to? Promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, fertility, everything that you can ask for, God was going to pour it out over their lives. But between Egypt and the land of Canaan, the promised land, there was work that had to be done in here. And God knew it. It was just a part of the process. Unfortunately, because of the Israelites' refusal to trust God, it went from, let's say, I don't know, 40 days to 40 years. There was a lot of work that needed to be done in here. And to be real with you, if we got to do that, we got to do that. But today, here in this place, I would love if we didn't have to wait 40 years. Because I don't got 40 years. I eat too much junk food. So, I wonder what it would look like if we would be a people that would just really listen and obey God. And says, I'm going to give you what you need. Don't go looking for more. Don't go getting greedy for more. Just trust in what I have for you and keep coming back to me as the sustainer, as the provider. So Satan, he says, make mana for yourself, just like the father did for the Israelites. Real children of God don't suffer. 
Huh. Ah. How many times have you heard that before to my Pentecostals in the house? I'm one. We're a Pentecostal church. How many times have you heard that? With the Lord, there is no suffering. You don't got to worry about your bank accounts. You don't got to worry about brokenness in your body. I believe in healing. I believe in divine provision. But that is a lie straight from this passage. The devil is trying to tell Jesus, you're a, if you're the son of God, you should not be hungry, sir. You should not be hungry. Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You think this hunger is what's most important in me? There's so much more that I'm going to have to go up against that's going to make this look like child's play. I'm going to a cross. How am I going to be ready for that if I can't face this? Satan, he's a subtle but master manipulator of Scripture. He's using the word of God in history through the Israelites to try and twist to get Jesus to do what he wants, and he's using it today to try and get people to do the same thing, to go astray. Satan is here trying to be a pastor. His pastoral application or interpretation of what Deuteronomy means is really, in short, this. Um, the reason your father, he, so he's, well, let me just play around with this. Here, here's what he's doing to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the, the reason that your heavenly father gave manna in the wilderness was to teach the people to expect miracles in distress. Uh, we're Pentecostal, so I'm going there, and we need to hear this. Um, to expect miracles in distress. Distress comes, miracles coming my way. I'm ready for it, God. Bring it to me, God. I need it. He certainly can, and he certainly has, and I believe he certainly does but to make it a norm, which is what Satan is trying to do with Jesus right now, is egregious. He's saying, so that's the case. So Jesus, son of God, treat yourself. Do a miracle. It's okay. Let me just say it this way. Trying to justify a shortcut still makes it a shortcut. And I don't mean a good shortcut. Sometimes shortcuts are good. In this context, it's not. No, it's not. It says that broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow and hard is the way that leads to eternal life. There aren't shortcuts on the way to glory. There aren't shortcuts on the journey to eternity. Man, I got a lot in me today, Brandon. I got, I got a lot of little, like, subtle almost rhymes. Start recording. Oh, no, sorry, we got it on Facebook. I'm going to make an album after this. Uh, <laughs> The, the real Slim Shady. Um, are you questioning who I am? I don't need to prove anything to you. I know who I am. All right, time out. Let's resume. Um, we'll continue that conversation later. Um, trying to justify shortcuts still makes it a shortcut. It does. Um, so I hope that you're not hearing what I'm not saying in this moment. So please, please, if what I've been saying has been falling on deaf ears, then do me a favor, try to really listen up for just the next 30 seconds or so. Um, what I'm not trying to promote is this form of religious legalism where if you're not doing this, then this is going to happen to you and it's very transactional and just do more and give more and God will get you more and you got to try it a whole lot harder. I'm not saying any of that. Um, what I am saying is this. If you can't control your impulses when consuming good things, how will you control your impulses when you got to face bad things? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sin is fun. Like F-U-N, fun. That's not unbiblical. It's, it's, sin is easy and it's fun. I'm sure we can, if you really think about it, and if it doesn't compromise your, your, your innocence a bit too much, you'll be like, I can agree with that statement. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, sin is fun. So if we can't learn to say no to the good things that aren't always fun, like, like I'm not saying this with fasting, but like eating veggies. Who wants to eat veggies? To all my vegans, all right, whatever. Um, I don't like eating vegetables. I'd rather down a super greens drink and 
puke up a little bit and swallow it again and say, I'm good, I got my veggies for the day. But nutrition says there's no fiber in that, so whatever. Um, I would rather do that. Um, It's harder to partake of the good things. It really is. So if we don't learn to control our compulsions when it comes to partaking of good things, then how do you think you're going to fare when the really, really easy things to partake of come about? When the sin really comes knocking on the door and says, hey, partake of this. It won't bode well for you. So Satan, he gives his first temptation, and then the offer in these temptations increases. The level of temptation increases. So it goes from, you got a bellyache. If you're the son of God, do something about it. It's okay. It's allowed. So that's the first thing. First, prove your identity by asking God to give you something good that you've been without for 40 days. Ask God for the miraculous to take care of yourself. Trying to justify it. All right, second, as we read, let's go back and let's read it for you again. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. What is he doing? What's Satan doing right now? For it is written? Quoting scripture. So he's using the Bible. He knows Jesus knows the Bible. He knows Jesus is all about the Bible, the word of God, which he came to fulfill. So he's using it to try and twist it to get Jesus to do the wrong thing. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he, God, will command angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's actually quoting a prophetic word in the Old Testament right here, which makes it even trickier, because he's like, well, clearly that must be what the prophetic word was about. So Jesus, prove it. You know, in, in sports, one of the biggest things that's talked about as Uh, a very praiseworthy attribute of athletes is when a commentator says they play the game at their pace. No matter what the defender is doing, the offensive player is not going to be sped up. He's not going to be pushed into doing something what he wants. That's one of the qualifiers of a fantastic athlete. They play the game at their speed. This is what Satan is trying to do in this moment. He's trying to get Jesus to react too soon and to make a misstep. And Jesus is like, I know my game, and I don't need to worry about what you're trying to do because you got nothing on me. I'm going to play the game at my pace. That's not what that prophecy is about. I'm going to fulfill that prophecy the right way and in the right time. But I got nothing to prove to you here today, Satan. So, prove your identity in the second way by doing something miraculous to prove who you are. So, it's, again, it's not just about fill your belly. It's really prove that you are who you say you are as it was written in the prophets. So, again... This is why fasting is so important and so essential. It's a reminder of who you are and who the source of life is. So if you fall into the trap of proving yourself, I got to prove it. They challenged me. They're pushing me into this. They're speeding up my game. I've got to prove myself. If you fall into that trap, listen to me, God is no longer your source. You are. God says, wait. Be patient. Trust me. I'm giving you what you need. No matter what enemy is coming your way, no matter what circumstance you're in, wait and trust me. Be still and know that I am God. And the devil is trying to speed Jesus up. Let's go. Get with it. Person of God, get with it right now. You should be acting in this way. If God is really good, if he's really your father, then this is what should be happening in your life. No, no, no. Right here, right now, God is the source if you wait. But if you fall into that trap, God's not your source anymore. You're probably trusting in yourself or something else. And let me tell you, if you fall into that trap, Satan's going to win every time. He's going to get you every time because he puts you right where he wanted you and he's going to take you out. So in these first two temptations, Satan is trying to get Jesus to question his identity. Now there's one more test, temptation, interaction between Jesus and Satan. And he's going to continue to try and question Jesus's identity, but he's going to do it in in a different way. Notice if we go back and let's read it one more time, um, in verses 8 and 9, it says this. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world 
and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Stop for a second because you might be wondering, Jesus, the Son of God, Satan, really? You have power to give him this? Do you know that you're talking to the Son of the Creator? Now that is true. But the Bible says two very important things that I think we need to remind ourselves in this moment to understand the significance of this temptation. Number one, it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So, in other words, he is God. But for our sakes, he set aside his divinity and took on humanity so that there would be no question as to the extremity of what he went through. He didn't tap into some supernatural divine power when on the cross. He could have, he didn't. He set it aside to show us, I went through it the way that you had to go through it, but I did it for you so you don't have to. That's number one. Number two, the apostle Paul describes Satan as the ruler of the prince of this world. And he has been given a level of authority and dominion. There is somebody at work behind all of these world superpowers doing evil things today. I'm not saying that he's the puppet master that's allowing people to do things against their will. I don't believe that. If God doesn't superimpose his will against our will, what makes us think that Satan can do that? I think it's always in conjunction with the devil. It's evil hearts, hearts that are not in line with God that are so easily led astray. So there is this harmony at work between God and the righteous or the devil and the evil. The question is, again, where is your heart? So here, it might seem like ridiculous. Why on earth would Satan think, well, just share those two different isolated texts that show Satan does have a level of authority and power here. It's not absolute, but in this moment, there's some merit to what he is offering Jesus. Jesus, who came to establish rule and dominion and authority. And you want to know how Jesus had to establish rule and dominion and authority in his way, in his kingdom? sacrifice, hardship, forgiveness, forgiveness to oppressors, the people who jeered and mocked and spat on him, the people who falsely accused him. That's how Jesus established dominion and authority over his kingdom. Do you think that's how Satan does it? No. Broad is the path. Jesus, you don't got to go through any of that. If you will just right here pay homage to me, worship me, call on me as your source, then I'll give you everything that you're here for, and I'm going to do it in a better, better way, easier way. Satan knew he couldn't get Jesus at this game of Scripture. He knew he could not get Jesus to question his identity through the lens of Scripture, So now he just, instead of dangling a little part of the carrot, he's like, here's the whole bundle. I'll give it all to you. He's putting all of his cards on the table. He's desperate in this moment. And Jesus continues to stand upon the word of God, something that I would argue he or at least none of us would ever be able to do if we weren't in a position of recognizing, of challenging ourselves, even though I've got this hunger in my belly, these parched lips, this tired back right now, I know there is something greater ahead. And this is preparing me for that. He was prepared because of his time of fasting. So this is the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Um, And if you go back and you read, just as we said, a miracle does happen. Not only is it a miracle that he was able to last this long, um, it's a miracle at the end. It says, then the devil left him, and then angels came and attended to him. Something miraculous. So back to the fact of that point that I made earlier, where the devil was trying to justify, you're in distress, you shouldn't be in distress, ask for a miracle. You got the point of what I was saying there, that shouldn't be the norm, but recognize God still will give you what you need in blessing or miracle when the time is right. So I want to go back pretty much for the rest of our time as we get closer to the end and go back one more time to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 3, give a little bit more detail to the hearts of the people of Israel while in the wilderness, while hungry, 
while hard-pressed, while tired, while trying to figure out how to sustain their life, while God is still giving, these them, giving them these commands like, hey, on the Sabbath, don't go out and work. Don't collect the mana. God, you realize how hard life is? It would be prudent of us. No, no, no. Listen to me. Trust me. So they're in this circumstance, and here's their response recorded at some point in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 3. In the desert, same word for wilderness in Hebrew, the whole community grumbled against the leadership, Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate food. This, the Hebrew word for, for food here is lachem. Food is more of the more of the generic term for it. Literally, it means bread. Bread. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live on what? Bread alone. There we had pots of stew and lechem, food or bread, we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. Um, again, I want to be judgmental of them, but... I don't think we quite understand how hard it probably was for them. I think there's some merit to this. Even though we were slaves, at least we could cook our meals that night. I mean, let's be real. We really want to judge them and say, like, you idiots, you got God on your side. Come on. Like, try going from what you've known generation after generation after generation to be uprooted, traveling, estimated it was close to a million people that they're trying to move. This is a massive migration of people led by two guys initially, really just one guy initially. I mean, this was hard work. In the wilderness, you're not stopping and planting crops. That's where you got your food. You're going through the desert. You don't know where the next appropriate water hole is going to be. And we know in Scripture they didn't find any. And once again, God supernaturally at the Rock of Mirror provided water. This was hard stuff they were going through. And God says, I know. Uh And this is what I got to do. I have got to do some work because there's some stuff in here that can't be in here when you get to the promised land. Otherwise, you're not going to handle well the gift that I give you. So I've got to work on what's in here. Does it got to be 40 years? I hope not. It depends on you. So the wilderness, again, represents what? Testing. Testing. And or from the enemy, temptations. But ultimately still testing from God. So let me give you this point about the Israelites. Israel may have left Egypt, but Egypt was still in the hearts of Israel. They changed their circumstances. They had God going before them. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They had a man of God leading them well. And then they had other administrators that rose up and led them well. And still, when God is providing for them food and water, giving them the sustenance that they need, they get tired of it. And they get tired of the hardship. And the response is, you know what? I wish I was still a slave in Egypt. It would have been better for me to be dead than being here right now. That's a strong statement. Some of us might have left our old life, but that life is still in you. You might have moved. You might have grown up. You might not have those same people around you, but it's still in you. It's time to let it go. It's time to let it go. If you want life in Jesus, it's time to let it go. I invite you to do that. I invite you here today to make a decision to say, you know what? It might not happen instantaneously, but I'm going to verbally in my heart make a declaration right here, right now, and say, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. I don't need my old life. I don't need my old sustenance. I don't need my old ways. Jesus, I recognize that I need you, and I step out in faith even when it's hard to trust that I need you. It's my invitation for you today. And here's the deal, it's not easy. I am not going to lead you astray and say it's going to be wonderful and easy and happy. 
it's not going to be easy at times. And all the time, you will realize that you have made the right choice because now you are living. Jesus came that we might have life and life abundantly, not just get by. So that no matter what's happening to you externally and circumstantially, it's upon Christ, the solid rock I stand, and all of the ground is sinking sand. That's what you get with Jesus. So ultimately, we all have got to make sure that we have Jesus in us and not Egypt, not the old life. So again, let me ask you this. What was the identity of Israel in Egypt? Slaves is the first part of it, but it's not just that. They were slaves to something in particular. It's a part of it, yeah. I'll say it broadly for you. They were slaves to sin and death. They were slaves to sin and death. I'm speaking broadly now. I'm not speaking historically and specifically. I'm taking Egypt and I'm making a greater meta narrative out of it. Literally, they were enslaved to something, to someone. But in a greater context, what their slavery represents that is represented all throughout Scripture is that they were enslaved to sin and death. Do you want to know what our identity in Christ is? It's a lot, actually. There's, there's a lot of descriptions and categories that we fall into. In Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom, sons and daughters, children of the Most High God, loved. But the Bible also talks extensively about the fact that we are free. But it also talks about a particular freedom that might be a little bit awkward that I'm about to say, and I think we need to explore it as we finish this message. Paul, time and time again, refers to himself, a Jew who has the history of slavery in Egypt, refers to himself time and time again, not just as an apostle, not just as an evangelist or or a pastor or a teacher or a child of God, He refers to God as master, and he identifies himself as a slave. He says, I, Paul, a servant, same word for slave. Some translations say bondservant. This is indentured servitude. So in Christ, let me tell you another identifier. Slave. I know we don't like that, but let me tell you, there's something really good about this. There's something amazing about this that I want to flip the script just in this moment on slavery. But before I give that, let me at least admonish and admit the fact that, listen, when we talk about slavery, there is a host of evil and wickedness that has been done to racial ethnicities, to black people in our country, and to a host of other people of color. Not just in our country, in other countries. Throughout history itself, there has been evil perpetrated in this concept of indentured servitude. Now, it looks different in different ways and in different times, but nonetheless, it was not right. But this is still a common thing in the day for Paul. And he's taking it, and what he's trying to do is flip the script. Because when a person recognized that their identity was as a slave, they recognized it meant I am broken, I am worthless, I am unloved, and my life is one of death. I am not my own. I am destined for sin and death. God, in Jesus Christ, shows up and says, I bought you. And let me read for you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, in contrasting these two forms of slavery. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, That though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now claimed your allegiance. 
Look at this. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves, watch this, to righteousness. To righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life. This is Paul saying, why am I talking about slavery? Why am I using it? It's an example. It's to help us understand something. Because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Watch this. When you were slaves to sin, you were free. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. So Paul's being cheeky. He's having fun with his words. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is saying, we all serve someone. And if you don't like that, you're just going to have to swallow that tough pill. The Bible also says you cannot serve two masters in talking about money. We're all in slavery to something. And is it wickedness? Is it a means to an end? Is it just trying to line your pockets? Is it just trying to fulfill all of your internal, wicked, gratifying, sinful desires? Is it trying to hook up with people day after day? Is it going to another drug or another bottle? Or is it also in the same vein an overindulgence in the things that were once good that have now become idols for you? You're still a slave to it if that's the case. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he bought that. He took that. And he says, you are not slaves to that anymore. That is death. That is not life. I have bought you and now you are slaves to to what? Righteousness and eternal life. If I got to be a slave to that, that sounds like a pretty good thing. And do I got to earn it? No. Do I got to work for it? No. It's upside down. Twisting it. So again, it's not condoning the idea of slavery. That's not what Scripture's talking about at all, at all. But it's taking something that is so ingrained in the cultural DNA of the time. And listen to me, we don't use that word because of the baggage that it holds today, but I'm using it here in this place to really break the mold and to tell you that spiritually we are all enslaved to someone or to something. Is it sin and death? Have you given your allegiance to something that is killing you? Or have you given yourself to Jesus who gave everything for you? Everything for you. And the result of that indentured servitude is life and life eternal. Righteousness that you don't have to earn yourself. Fasting tests where the heart is. It reveals the things that are in control. Who's in control of who you are? Who is your identity in? Is it yourself? Is it this world? Is it a thing? Is it a process? It's going to be short-lived. And if you haven't experienced that, I promise you, you will. But Jesus, his grace, it never runs out. Never gives up. He's a well that never runs dry. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I get the feeling that in this place, there are a lot of burdened people. There are a lot of heavy laden people. There are a lot of exhausted people. Literally, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm going to ask Brandon just to sing a chorus with us. Would you stand on your feet right now in this moment? We're going to sing a chorus to a song that says, I'm no longer slaves. I'm no longer slaves to fear. But listen, we're changing the lyrics just for this one time. We're not a slave to sin. We're not a slave to fear. But we are slaves to someone. And let's declare who we are slaves to in this place. That is a slave of God. And I encourage you, it might be awkward in this place. But I would encourage you, just dwell on this. 
Dwell on what it means. If you want to sing it, sing it. See who you are in Jesus. You're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a slave of God, destined for life. Hallelujah, Jesus. No longer a slave to fear. Life, God. Life, God. Give life. Hallelujah. To fear. No longer slaves to sin and death. It's done. I am a slave of God. I serve you, Jesus. I serve you, Jesus, and you alone. Oh, a slave. No more, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I'm a slave to you, God. I give my life to you. Thank you for what you've given. Thank you, Jesus. Longer slave. Jesus, I am a slave. He splits the seas. Yes, he does. He makes a way. Hallelujah. There is no one like you, God. There is no one like you, God. You provide in the wilderness. You make a way when there seems to be none. Thank you, Jesus, that that life is in you. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm no longer. That's who I was. That old self is done away with. It's gone. It's done. Jesus, I give myself to you. Help me to embrace who I am in you and all that you have given me. Oh, Jesus, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. Yes, Jesus, perfect love, God. You rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child. Let's sing that out again. You split the sea. You split the sea so I could walk right through. My fears are drowned. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me. You rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. That's who we are, God, your children. That's who we are. Hallelujah. Walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. Oh, you rescued me so I could stand and sing I am a child of God a child yes we are your children God we longer to sing I'm a child of God now I am a child of God hallelujah I'm no longer slave. Sing, I'm saved by God now. I am saved by God. I'm no longer slave. Sing, I'm a slave of God. I am a slave of God for righteousness and eternal life. No longer a slave for sin or death. I'm a child. I am a child. Jesus, right now, I just lift up every child in this place. Every one of us, God. I lift up in this place the worry, the anxiety, the fear, the exhaustion, the discouragement the pain, the affliction. 
Jesus, I lift them up to you right now. God, I pray that you would help sustain us beyond what we can bear. Lord, I pray right now that you would help us to consider it pure joy, specifically the wilderness of fasting that we are in today and in these weeks. Father, I pray for the days that individuals have chose to fast. I pray for the things that people have decided to fast. I pray that as they fast those things, with their minds and with their hearts, reveal to them who they are all about. And God, if there's something that's in our hearts, if there's an old self, if there's Egypt in our hearts still, I pray that you would take that place. I pray that we wouldn't be fasting to sustain an old self. I pray that we wouldn't be trying to do something in your name just so that we can live up the old self. But God, I pray that when we fast, you would be in our hearts. You would become the center of our hearts. Transform us, God. So that when that anxiety does come, when that exhaustion does come, when that pain, when that hardship does come, we're ready for it. We're hard-pressed but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but we are not destroyed. Because in our weakness, your power is made perfect. Jesus, I pray that your power would be perfected in our lives in this season of wilderness journeying. Bless us today, I pray. God, I just pray for protection, for grace and mercy. I pray for rest and an infilling of your Holy Spirit to be upon all of us in this place so that we can be ready for the wilderness when we go through it. Bless your people. And in Jesus' name, the people of God agreed together and said, amen, amen. Amen. Why don't you give God praise one more time because he is worthy to be praised. Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday. Be well.